For a number of weeks, we've been looking at a section of 1 Corinthians where Paul has been trying to address one of the most difficult issues to deal with in the life of any believer. We might call it spiritual apathy, an attitude, an ungodly attitude of spiritual complacency and presumption. It's one of the most difficult problems to deal with because it hides behind the mask of spiritual strength. It lives behind the walls of well-versed doctrine and proficient Bible knowledge. It doesn't appear on the outside to be weakness. It doesn't look like a problem. As a matter of fact, it often abides in lives that are well-blessed, appear to be blessed in every way. This kind of spiritual apathy is difficult to deal with. It is hard to root out. You won't find it often in times of trouble, but in the midst of visible blessings that conceal its festering effect in someone's heart and someone's life. While there may be many blessings that are visible, certainly that are providing the mask, behind the mask and behind the walls, there is this growing sense of grumbling, this growing attitude of discontentment and of complaining before the Lord, accompanied by a tendency to magnify the losses in our lives and to minimize the blessings. The grumbling then feeds the sort of presumption that goes along with all of this. So it's hard to deal with in the lives of people who are suffering from this kind of spiritual presumption, it's hard to deal with because in the midst of their blessing and in the midst of all their knowledge and all their doctrinal understanding, they feel so secure. They feel like they have everything in line. Well, this is exactly where the Corinthians were. This is exactly where so many Christians, unfortunately, go. They believe that they are strong, They believe that they are knowledgeable. They believe that they are mature. As a matter of fact, we've seen this a number of times. It was the Corinthians who would profess over and over again, I have knowledge or we have knowledge. They would go around uh, constantly reaffirming themselves with their own lips. They believed that they were blessed by God. And not only that, they were insistent on holding tightly to those blessings They believed that they had been freed from sin. And not only that, they insisted uh, adamantly in holding tightly to their freedoms. Their personal privileges, their Christian liberties. Led them, as we've seen, to associate with sinful ceremonies and ignore the needs of other brothers and sisters around them, become self-absorbed and self-focused, and in short, they reached a very, very dangerous position. Serious danger of spiritually falling. This is what Paul's been trying to get through to them. We saw back in chapter 8, verse 1, he warned them that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. They were puffed up, they were arrogant, they were proud, they were on the verge of falling because of that. And then at the end of chapter 9, 
after nearly two chapters of trying to deal with this, Paul contrasts his own example, how he was in relentless pursuit of doing all that he could to serve all that he could and to win as many as he could to salvation by the gospel. He literally says that he would beat his body black and blue in order to do all that he could for the sake of the ministry. Hardly a life of presumption. Hardly a life of entitlement. As we come to chapter 10 this morning, Paul brings out this contrast, the contrast between their spiritual presumption and his spiritual pursuit with a vivid warning in in this chapter against their spiritual pride and complacency and apathy and is really found summarized for us in verse 12 of the chapter. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. That's the theme of the first half of this chapter, the theme really of the entire three chapters, and it's God's message for us today. Paul drove home this message, as we said, at the end of chapter 9 by his own example, by the analogy of a, of a runner running a race and, and striving to be the one who, who finally seizes the prize. Well, in chapter 10, he uses another analogy. It's an analogy or it's a parallel of God's people, Israel, in the Old Testament. And Paul draws out the parallels of a people who were themselves greatly blessed by God, but had forgotten God's blessings, had presumed upon His grace, had stirred His wrath, and had forgotten to seek His face. He begins this analogy by reminding the Corinthians, or reminding us, of the divine privileges of God's people in the Old Testament. He says to them, I don't want you to be unaware, verse 1. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers. Not that he seriously feared they were unaware of the history. They, like us, no doubt, had heard the stories. They knew the history very well, but they apparently had missed the lessons, the spiritual lessons, the theology, you might say, that arises out of that history. And Paul goes on to rehearse some of the salient points of the momentous events of Israel's history. This was a theme that obviously was repeated over and over again, not only throughout the Old Testament, in psalm after psalm, in the message of the prophets over and over again, but even after the closing of the Old Testament canon, you see it repeated again and again and again in Jewish literature. This was the touchstone of Israel's relationship to God. And here is now again the Apostle Paul rehearsing the the lessons from a generation past that set a sort of paradigm for all future generations of God's people to learn from. And it begins with an understanding of these divine privileges, unspeakable mercy, power, and deliverance that the Lord had given to them, manifest again and again. Blessings he mentions here that were at the heart of Israel's relationship to God. Now, to say all that doesn't imply, by the way, that the people that Paul's referring to in these verses were themselves spiritually saved. 
We shouldn't confuse that. That's not the point of what Paul's making. Many of the Jews who were brought out of the bondage of Egypt weren't spiritually saved. They were not God's people in a spiritual sense. They weren't regenerate. They were still, we might say, under God's eternal wrath. But outwardly, God poured out tremendous grace and blessing on them. Never spiritually saved, but, but nationally and outwardly, they were recipients of a covenant with God. A covenant that secured His, his blessing and His long-term faithfulness to them. And so the Exodus becomes sort of the paradigm for this. God's calling of His covenant people, His chosen people, believing and unbelieving within the nation of Israel out of their bondage in Egypt. And He delivered them out of this land to a land He had promised to Abraham because of His promises to Abraham. They were then... They were the centerpiece of God's testimony of grace, the centerpiece of His message of faithfulness. They were delivered out of this bondage into this newfound freedom, and yet it was this freedom that they so misunderstood. A freedom from this slavery that they took as a wide-open door to indulge themselves and not to serve God. It really doesn't surprise us because they were so unbelieving. There were so many of them who were still so unregenerate. Like the Jews of Jesus' day, they weren't sons of God. They were still sons of Satan. And so in some ways, it's not shocking that they would turn such a cold and hard heart to God. But what is shocking and what Paul's bringing out to us here and what has been set up as a paradigm for us is that we who do claim such spiritual salvation, we who do claim a regenerate heart would follow in the same kinds of patterns. That's a disgraceful thing that Paul's highlighting here. Brought out of a life of bondage to sin, given over to a life of freedom in Christ, that we would so misunderstand the grace of God and would take our freedoms, not as opportunities to serve God, but to serve ourselves. Following the very same history that unfortunately was repeated over and over again in Israel. You remember the story, 400 years of slavery in Egypt. They were brought out by a mighty hand of God, brought through plagues that were that were so destructive to Egypt, God opened the Red Sea as He led them out of that nation. They passed through on dry land. Then He closed the waters behind them, not only sealing off their old life, but destroying their enemies. He guided them by a pillar of cloud by the day and a pillar of fire by the night. All of this redeeming them as God brought them to the foot of a mountain where He established a new Covenant, not, a, not the new covenant, but he established a covenant with them whereby he descended to that mountain in smoke and thunder and lightning and a cloud and he gave this tablet, these laws, he established a covenant to be their God and they were to be his people. 
Now, this is Paul's reference here in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 10 when he says, Our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. The cloud that he's referring to there is the cloud of the covenant. And the sea he's referring to, obviously, is the Red Sea. This is, this is a, the reference to the recipients of such divine grace. They were recipients of a covenant. They were recipients of God's deliverance. The parallels that are there clearly with us. And he draws out the parallel in verse 2 saying, All of them were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Not that the crossing of the Red Sea was some giant baptism ceremony. Paul's not using baptism in the sense that they went under the sea and came back up. Certainly is the mode of baptism that's taught in Scripture, but that's not what the point is here. He mentions not only a baptism in the sea, but you'll notice he mentions also a baptism in the cloud. And he's using then the word baptism here in the general sense of being immersed into something. Plunged into something, we might say. They were immersed or they were plunged into Moses. They were identified with Moses, who was the the instrument of God and his deliverance for his people. They formerly had been identified as slaves. Now they were identified under the leadership of Moses into the law of Moses, a new identity, no longer slaves, but now the people of God, no longer bound, but now free. This was their baptism. Similar way, by the, by the way, in the way that the scripture describes us, when we trust Jesus Christ, we're baptized into Christ. We have a new identity in Christ. We formerly were far off, now we're brought near. We formerly were slaves of sin, now we are found in Christ, freed from sin and from its penalty. That's what the cross is all about. The cross is about deliverance, it's about salvation, it's about redemption, it's about freeing those who are bound in slavery to the sinful desires of their heart and bound forever under the condemnation of that sin. Christ comes and offers a sacrifice on the cross that frees all of those who trust in Him. This is what Jesus meant when He said, you'll know, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. So here we are, Galatians tells us, as many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. They've clothed themselves with Christ. We have now a new identity. It is as if we have taken upon ourselves the royal robes, the the uh, the clothing that identifies you with your new role. We used to babysit a boy in California, and we always loved the fact that this kid went around in 24-7 in an outfit of a fireman. And he believed that he was a fireman. He would go down to the firehouse every Saturday, and he would stand around with the fireman in his, his, his get-up. And, and they had convinced him that he was a fireman along with them, even though they never called him out for the you know, the, the battles. But for him, it was all about the dress. It was all about how he clothed himself. Putting on the garments to him identified him as a fireman. 
That's what Paul's saying there in Galatians. You put on Christ. You identify now by the kind of, by the kind of garments that you're wearing, like a judge or, 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 or like someone else in some official gear. This is what identifies you with Christ. You're clothed in Him. This is what Paul says these guys got. They went from the rags of slavery, the ridicule of slavery, to this new identification as the people of God. An amazing transformation, mind-boggling in its, in how rapidly it took place, we should say. Not only that, not only God delivered them and give them a new identity, but He provided for them Paul speaks of God providing spiritual food and drink. They all ate, he says in verse 3, the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. Paul calls these spiritual because they weren't necessarily the product of nature. He's referring, of course, to the way that God provided manna for them to eat when they were wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years and water for them to drink. These weren't natural The children of Israel would go out each day and they would find on the ground like dew these wafers that were known as manna. And there's nothing that they could do that could produce them. And if they took too many of them, they went rotten except on the Sabbath day. They were to take a double portion and it wouldn't rot on that day. There's nothing natural about these these wafers at all. Not only that, which is recorded for us in Exodus 16, but in Exodus, excuse me, yeah, Exodus 17, God records in the very next chapter how He also provided for them water. They were in the desert and they thirsted, they were thirsty, and God commanded Moses to strike a rock, and out from the rock came waters flowing. Now, while it's not stated explicitly there in Exodus 17, it is certainly implied that this wasn't a one-time occurrence. Just like the manna that was there every morning, we must assume that there was constantly some provision of water, maybe on a periodic basis, maybe on a daily basis. Because they were in the wilderness, how long? For 40 years. And there's no way they could have stored enough water from that one-time event to have survived that long in the middle of the desert, right? And so we assume that this was just the first of several provisions of water that were given to them supernaturally as they wandered throughout the desert those 40 years. We know of another event in Numbers 20. So you have Exodus 17, and then you come to the end of their wilderness wandering in Numbers 20. And once again, God provides water from a rock. He tells Moses to speak to the rock. Moses disobeys and strikes the rock, and God Judges him, but once again, he provides for Israel. And then again, in Numbers 21, God provides water from an apparently dried up well along the way. And so we just get the message that there were these repeated events where God provided water for them. So this is what Paul means when he says they had spiritual food and spiritual drink. Unnatural, supernatural, we would say. But then people read and wonder what the rest of verse 4 means. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock 
was Christ. We might understand spiritual food and spiritual drink. We might understand these supernatural elements. We might understand that even the rock that was struck was supernatural because it provided water. But how, how does Paul say it followed them? Or how does he say that this rock was Christ? It's been a mystery to a lot of people. In fact, sometimes that's the most difficult part of this passage is just trying to figure out this, this uh, reference here, and yet it's important. I think it's helpful to realize that Paul, just like all the other New Testament writers, when they read the Old Testament, they didn't read it in a compartmentalized way. And they didn't read it as just a, a, a string of detached historical events. They read the Old Testament in, a, in a, a complete way, a holistic way, and they read it not just as history, but as theology. In this case, Paul appears to be reading all these sweeping events out of Exodus and out of Numbers through the lens of Deuteronomy 32, one of the most important chapters in all the Old Testament, yet one of the ones that is least known by Christians. Part of this chapter contains a song. We call it the Song of Moses. It was a song written to commemorate lessons from the wilderness wandering. It was written in order to teach future generations the lessons that were to be learned from this period. And central theme of Deuteronomy 32, just like a central theme of 1 Corinthians 8-10, through 10, is the whole issue of the people's participation in idolatry. Remember, this is the backdrop in Corinth. This is what was getting Israel, I mean, excuse me, Corinth into so much trouble. They were going to these idolatrous ceremonies and participating in idolatrous feasts and claiming that somehow they weren't participating in the idolatry. So it would only make sense that Paul's mind would be drawn to this monumental chapter, Deuteronomy 32. Go back, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. Deuteronomy 32. You see how it plays in the background as Paul writes 1 Corinthians chapter 10 with very vivid and poetical language. As God recounts His kindness by the prophet Moses to Israel. Deuteronomy 32, echoing words that are found really throughout so many places of the Old Testament. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. My teaching drop as rain, my speech distilled, uh, distilled as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. And listen to this, the rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They're no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is it not he, your father, who created you, you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you your elders and they will teach, they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations... Uh, 
their inheritance when he divided mankind. He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. The Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land. In the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest. It flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided them. No foreign God was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land, he, and he ate the produce of the field. He suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock. Herds from the herd and milk from the flock with fat of lambs, rams of Bashan. Goats with the very finest of wheat, and you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God and made him who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons. There were no gods. Now is that explicit verse, Deuteronomy thirty two seventeen, that Paul will go on to quote back in First Corinthians chapter ten. In verse fourteen, if you'll flip back to First Corinthians, Paul very explicitly calls them, therefore, my beloved. Flee from idolatry. And then down again in verse 18, calling on them to consider the example of Israel. He says, consider the people of Israel. And with a series of rhetorical questions, he draws the connection between them and the Corinthians. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that to an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice... They offer to demons and not to God. It's an explicit reference to Deuteronomy 32. And then down in 1 Corinthians 10, 22, we read, Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Once again, a reference to Deuteronomy 32, verse 21. You recognize all these connections. You begin to realize Paul isn't dreaming up some strange image of a boulder or a rock rolling around in the desert with Israel. He's talking about God, who no less than five times in Deuteronomy 32 is referenced as Israel's rock. The one who provided for them drink and food and protection Paul's what he's doing here is he's expounding Deuteronomy 32. He's bringing out the meaning that, that, the, that, that Moses had already given to the lessons of the wilderness wandering. One of the key lessons is the fact that God was a rock for Israel in those days who met all their needs and yet they forsook him. Despite all these advantages, Israel took God's blessings for granted. They forsook God 
They turned to other gods. They made idols. They plunged themselves into idolatrous relationships. And so Paul says in verse 6, with most of them, God was not pleased. That's got to be the understatement of the century. Because out of about a million people, how many actually entered the promised land? Two, right? Joshua and Caleb. Two out of a million. An entire generation of Israelites who were left, as Paul says in verse 6, overthrown. The word is literally scattered about. Catastronomy, the word we get our get our word catastrophe from that. They were they were literally strewn about, their bodies laying waste throughout the desert as they wandered around, spread all over the place with their corpses, some of them dying during that period of time by violent deaths, some of them dying by plagues, some of them dying just by natural death as God left them to wander. In the end, God bringing His judgment against most of them. Why? Because they all had abused their blessings. They all had misused their privileges. They all, because of their self-centeredness and self-will, had forgotten the grace and mercy that had delivered them to begin with. They had forgotten their life as a slave. They had forgotten their bondage in Egypt. They had forgotten the mercy of God to bring them out. They had forgotten all of those things. And their deliverance actually became an excuse. Not for them to serve God, but to serve themselves. So they were overtaken by temptation and sin. They became disqualified. Disqualified. For the task that God had for them in the promised land. See, all this flows out of what Paul said at the end of 1 Corinthians 9. Paul says he's beating his body so he doesn't become disqualified. He doesn't want to be in the race and to somehow veer outside the lines. He doesn't want to be one of these people who somehow forget where they started or where they're going. He doesn't want to be somebody who receives all of the privileges that Christ has poured into our lives. Someone who has forgotten all the mercy and all the kindness and all the grace. He doesn't want to be somebody who forgot that somewhere along the way they were a slave to their sins. So that they now turn around having forgotten that and pursue the very same things that once they were enslaved to. He doesn't want to be one of those people who thinks that somehow God has released them from bondage so that they can serve themselves. This is his warning to them. That they wouldn't be somehow vessels of dishonor, unfit for God's use, as Paul tells Timothy, in 2 Timothy 2, who no longer flee youthful desires, Instead, who pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with one another. These people didn't do it. 
So their bodies scattered like potsherds of a broken vessel throughout the sands of the desert. They were discarded. God raised up another group of people. That leads Paul to go even deeper as he outlines for us in verse 6 some of the ungodly presumptions of these people. The ungodly presumptions. Paul tells us plainly in verse 6, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And he goes on to outline four major areas of evil desire on their part. Idolatry, sexual immorality, doubt, and grumbling. First area of evil desire manifested was idolatry. And Paul quotes here, In verse 7 from Exodus 32, that infamous case of the golden calf, where Paul quotes, the people sat down to eat and and drink and rose up to play. An incident at the foot of Mount Sinai when God was at that very moment fashioning a covenant with them, selecting them out from all the peoples on the face of the earth to show them particular blessings. And at that very moment of the most amazing grace that had been shown to any nation and any people up to that point, you remember the story, while Moses is up on the mountain, they are down impatiently at the foot because of his delayed return, begging Aaron, who was not difficult to persuade, to fashion for them a golden calf. And they set up this golden calf and they refer to it as the Lord, Yahweh, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Aaron built the calf and an altar and he declared, Exodus 32 tells us, a feast to the Lord. And this is where we read that the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. It's interesting Because that's all very similar language to what had been given in Exodus 24 just a few days earlier. When God established a covenant ceremony to be participated in with Him. A ceremony that Israel was to commemorate because of their allegiance to God and His kindness to them. Somehow they thought that they could worship the true God, use some of the elements that he had even prescribed, but then incorporate whatever else they wanted to, even pagan idols, and it all be acceptable. The image they created, of course, was idolatrous. The feast that they took place with place in in was evil. And Paul drives home directly to the Corinthians who were wanting to worship the true God while still holding on to their sinful feasts and indulgences. How God would never accept this. These Corinthians They thought that they too could preserve their relationship to God while exercising freedom in all these other areas, eating and drinking at at pagan temples, 
Connection's clear. And but this is what happens to believers all the time. That's why those events of the Exodus are repeated over and over and over again for you and I. Paul says here in verse 6, they were written down as an example for us. That there is a, a pathway where you establish some competing idol in your heart with God. And you convince yourself that you can serve both. Jesus, of course, warned, you cannot worship God and mammon. You cannot worship God and wealth. Paul outlines in Colossians 3 that idolatry is one and the same with greed. He says in Ephesians 5 that covetousness is idolatry. And yet, while we may not be drawn to pieces of wood or pieces of metal, and we don't find ourselves bowing down to those, people make gods all the time that compete in their hearts with the true God, gods of success, gods of, of social standing, gods of prestige before men, gods of their own time, gods of their own family, gods of their own uh, uh, rules and regulations, gods of success and recognition, Pleasure and recreation, gods of wealth, gods that stand in their heart against the true God. And they convince themselves that they can serve both, that they can feast at the table of these idols. The Bible's crystal clear. God doesn't look kindly. On those who forget, He alone is to be worshipped. Who forget their slavery, give in to their evil cravings. Forget the lessons of history. It's the second major area of sin that Paul deals with in verse 8. He says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. 23,000 fell in a single day. Paul now records an incident out of Numbers in the wilderness, we read, we read Numbers 25, that the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab, for they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. Now it's just a natural connection. Through their idolatry, they were introduced to sexual immorality, and by sexual immorality, we're told that God struck down 20, uh, 24,000 uh, Israelites because of that. Paul mentions 23, probably... Uh, we're to understand that 23 were struck down the first day, a thousand died in the subsequent days. But it's natural for Paul to bring this up because we've already seen in 1 Corinthians, not only were they participating in these pagan feasts, but they themselves were flirting all the time with sexual immorality. They had convinced themselves because of their freedom in Christ. Remember this back in chapter 6, that they were proclaiming that they are free to do whatever they want. All things are lawful for me. That's their slogan. And they used it as an opportunity to flirt with sexual immorality. Paul has to rebuke in the strongest way. This was, this was as it is in so many of the ancient idolatrous cultures, closely associated with idolatry. And even here in Corinth where they had a temple to Aphrodite, 
And there was this, this temple prostitution that was renowned throughout the Roman Empire. So no doubt as they went to all these social occasions that were associated with, with pagan idolatry and pagan feasts and they would go to weddings in their culture and they would go to celebrations in their culture and they would go to to all kinds of ceremonies in their culture, even funerals in their culture. And there was involved in nearly every one of these some idolatrous religious element, just like there is in our culture, a religious element in all of these ceremonies. But in this, it was idolatry, and the idolatry was often associated with immorality. Ceremonies, weddings, festivals. And the Corinthians have become desensitized to it all. Proclaiming their theological knowledge. Claiming their spiritual blessings. Justifying all of their actions. Believing that they could do all this without forsaking God. Paul reminds them of how swiftly God acted against a past generation. It was lulled into that kind of deception. There's a third major sin Corinthians were in danger of, and that is doubting God. This is really what's behind what Paul says in verse 9, the testing of God. We're not to put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. That's Paul's interpretation, you might say, Paul's application of what we read in Numbers 21. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of the Egypt to die in the wilderness for there's no food or water and we loathe this worthless food? And the Lord sent fiery serpents among them and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. This is their test. Their test was to doubt God and His goodness and His plan and His faithfulness. And they grumbled against God because While God was providing for them, He wasn't providing for them the way they wanted to. And so they began to question. Question Moses and question God. They wanted more variety, more spice to their life. Not recognizing God had already been gracious to feed them and provide for them. That leads to the fourth element, the fourth evil desire that Paul drives home here in verse 10, that we shouldn't grumble. Some of them did. They were destroyed by the destroyer. Again, number 16, after Korah and Dathan and Abiram and their fellow rebels were destroyed, the congregation of the sons of men grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying, you are the ones who've caused the death of God's people. Here they are now. They're suffering the consequences of their own waywardness. And yet it is those who are faithful to God that they blame. Murmuring, directed to Moses, but really at the heart of it was murmuring against God. Challenging His wisdom, challenging His right to judge in this way. And the destroyer, that's what Paul calls him here, killed 14,000, almost 15,000 people. Because of that. All of this comes in the life of people 
who thought that they were under God's grace. They thought they were under a covenant. They thought that somehow they were secure. And yet they weren't. Behind all the outward blessings, behind behind whatever they might have thrown up as their walls of defense, there was a festering unbelief. A festering apathy. It was certainly there in the camp of Israelites. Paul says it's here in the hearts of the Corinthians. They're in the heart of a lot of believers. And they hide behind their knowledge. They hide behind their theology. They hide behind their blessings. And yet there is, there is this withering presumption. This grumbling against God. This craving things other than Him. Ripping their spiritual life apart. And that leads Paul to the final compelling parallel with Israel. He says, these things happened to them as examples. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages come. They're written down as a warning. God gave them, but He intended them for us. The end of the ages, by the way, is just a reference to the Messianic times. The times from the first return of Christ, a first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. And he says these were, these were intended for us. So that in verse 12, anyone who thinks that they stand should take heed lest they fall. Timeless principle. Pride goes before destruction. And a haughty spirit before stumbling. It's time for God's people to remember where they came from. Time for God's people to remember they've been bought with a price. Time to remember that they were slaves and the freedom that God has given to them is not a freedom to indulge their own lusts, to serve their their own selves. God, if He has saved you today, He has brought you out of a life of sin so that you can serve Him, so that you can worship Him. And maybe you're one of those ones who have felt secure in all your knowledge and you have allowed there to fester in your own heart this growing grumbling against God, this growing presumption of His grace, this growing insensitivity to sin. Perhaps you're one of the ones who are no longer taking heed. Paul's warning comes to you. Don't let the carelessness go unchecked. Don't let the openness to temptation, the flirtation with it. Don't let the decreasing resistance to sin in your life go unchecked. Don't let the desire for God diminish. Beat your body. Bring it into submission. Lest after you've preached to others, you yourself might be disqualified. Let's stand together as we're dismissed with a word of prayer. Just a word to you if you're here this morning. You hear about Christians who are going wayward and you, you know that's not your problem because you were never found in Christ. You have never come to Him.
Our challenge to you this morning is that you wouldn't remain in a life of bondage to sin. Christ can set you free. He can save you. He can give you new life. He can make you a vessel fit for His use. When we pray in a moment, I want to encourage you that if you don't know Christ this morning, that you would come to me, come to one of our elders, any of our teachers, anybody in this church, really, we would love an opportunity to share with you how you can know Christ. You can have your sins forgiven. How you can have eternity secured by His gift. Go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're grateful this morning for the Word of God, the sobering reminder, the dangers that we face all the time. And Lord, forgive us if we have let our hearts grow dull, we've failed to be vigilant. Forgive us, Lord, if we've forgotten either the race that we're in or the slavery that we've come from. If we've looked at our freedom as an opportunity to serve ourselves and not you, our blessings as something to be worshipped rather than the giver. Father, these are all temptations, but all temptations that you can, by your Spirit, bring us through. We pray, Lord, that you would do that, that you'd help us to take heed today, help us to examine ourselves, keep us from falling. We pray in Christ's name.